So for lesson five, page 39 in the uh, section on interpretation of scripture. So that first uh, point there, the scriptures are to be interpreted by the diligent application of the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation as the believer is enlightened by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not give a hidden meaning to the scriptures, but rather helps the believer to apprehend the meaning of the scripture already in the inspired words. So there's several key things there. Uh, One is the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. What is that? Well, it's interpreting the scripture pretty much the same way you would interpret... um, anything you read. You start from the, the, the perspective that um, it means what it says. That's literal. Right? Uh, now, does that mean that everything it says is... What's the best way to describe this without giving an example? Um, does it mean that everything is to be taken um, uh, strictly literal? No, because even in daily speech, we use um, terms and expressions and things that indicate that we don't mean something literally. We're using it as a figure of speech, is what we call it, right? So when Jesus said... I am the door. Does that mean he swings on hinges? You, you know immediately what he means by that, right? That he's the passageway, the, 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 um, the avenue, the, the, the way of access, like a door would be from one room to another. Um, there were some times when he used figures of speech and it really caused people to scratch their heads. Like he says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. Um, uh, a little bit easier when he says I am the light of the world you know he's not talking about the literal light he's talking about a figure of speech which compares him with light to uh, expose things and to um, bring understanding and uh, ability for people to see things. But if you understand figures of speech like that, which in our context, when someone says something that's a figure of speech, you understand immediately that it is a figure of speech, and then with that understanding, you take it literally. You take the meaning or the parallel literally, not the actual words of the figure of speech. Um, and, but we do that all the time. When we read something, when we hear someone say something. Um, so that's, that's still within the bounds of what it means to be literal and to interpret scripture literally. It means what it is intended to say and how, how the, the original hearers, particularly readers, uh, would have understood it. They would have taken that any of these figures of speech literally in the sense that they um, uh, understand the meaning behind the figure of speech and that that meaning is to be taken literally. Right? So that's literal. Oh, good question. Yes. So, um, so when it comes under literal, um, does it also hold that when we look at the book of Proverbs in comparison to, let's say, the book of John, for example, Proverbs is a book of wisdom, whereas John is more of a historical account. So, when we read Proverbs, or we're reading it in its literal, uh, its literature content, or I don't know how to say this, but reading it as a book of wisdom, not like, oh, this is a historical account, versus John, we read it as a historical account. Yes. So, according to its literature content. Yes, the literary form. Literary form, yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, of course, the Bible has multiple literal forms. Uh, including historical accounts, as you say, 
but also um, um, uh, like the epistles are not necessarily intended to be historical, although they're in a historical context. Um, they're more what um, expositional, instructive, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Um, um, the Psalms, for example, what kind of literary form are they? Poetry. Poetry. Um, not poetry that, you know, when I think of poetry, I think of, you know, the last words rhyme and you keep the same kind of cadence and this sort of, sort of thing. Uh, poetry, the way we might think of poetry, uh, is probably a lot different from the way the Hebrews approached poetry. And, in fact, it is. But it's poetic nonetheless and has um, certain elements of, of um, uh, structure, but more so um, just a, a variety of, of um, topics, including praise, uh, uh, various kinds of prayer, both thanksgiving and and intercession, and um, just a, a, a variety of themes that come across in the Psalms. The Proverbs. What what, what is a proverb? Similar to a parable, wisdom. A proverb, you can think of a proverb as a general truism. And so, for example, when Proverbs says, um, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that a formula? Uh, is it a guarantee? It's a truism, it generally speaking, that when we invest in our children with godly values and um, uh, they, they understand those things and um, live according to them, that's going to bear very good fruit. That's the general truism. Does, is it a guarantee that the, the parents can guarantee that their method of parenting is going to result in a godly child? No, there's no guarantee, but it's a general truism. It's, it's something that parents should be guided by, but um, it's a proverb. It's not a promise. Wisdom, exactly. So there's a lot of wisdom there, um, but even wisdom has exceptions. You know, God can sovereignly just choose to go some other route, um, uh, and we can't control the behavior of other people, but we can abide by the wisdom God has given us, and that's why Proverbs was written, to give us that guidance, that, uh, those general truisms that are a wise foundation for living. Song of Solomon? I want to get there in a minute. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it, because that's a kind of a little bit different um, style or form of, of writing. Let's, let's, I want to get there in a minute. But so, we, that's, so literal means you, you, you understand what was intended by the author pretty clearly, and you take it literally. You don't say, well... Um, scripture says love your neighbor as yourself and then you twist that to mean love them if they love you well that actually violates other principles in scripture right we should love them um, unconditionally um, and so we take things literally and we don't kind of try to twist them to fit our own agenda is basically the approach. And that ought to be the approach we have when we read or listen to uh, anything. You know, you read the newspaper. 
and you may grumble that maybe they get the facts wrong or something like that, or maybe they have an agenda, but you understand what they're trying to say, and you take it literally, that's what they mean to say. Um, grammatical. You, you all, of course, grammar is everybody's favorite subject, right, in, in language. Um, <laughs> all those rules and this kind of thing. But they're, they're there for a reason, to help us understand the meaning, right? So examples of grammar would be, is it um, singular or plural? That has some, some um, connotations and implications. Um, the English language is not very helpful to us there. You know, like the word you, is that singular or plural? Yes. <laughs> right? Um, other languages are not that, what, uh, limited. And they're very structured on singular versus plural, or male versus female, or, um, you know, prepositions matter in terms of interpretation, right? Uh, all these, these components of the structure of, of a sentence, let alone a paragraph, um, you, you change one of them, and you're likely to be changing the meaning. Now, not always, but, but you need to be alert to that, right? And so when we seek to interpret Scripture, we need to pay attention to the grammar, and particularly the grammar in the original languages. Um, for the most part, those are reflected in the good, better English translations, so... It's not too hard, as long as we're paying attention. Um, so grammar is important. And then historical, literal, grammatical, historical. Um, what's meant there is that there's, there's a historical context in which what we're reading was written. And the, the, the participants the uh, readers of whatever it is we're reading uh, or what was written, the original hearers, the original recipients of it, they were in a context so that the better we understand their context, the better we're going to understand the words that were written directly to them. Uh, if we try to interpret it without that in mind and think of it in our context, a lot of times we'll get it right because it doesn't matter about the context. But we're probably going to miss some things if we don't understand the context uh, in which it was originally written. Um, so the historical context. Um, and then, of course, with uh, the literal and grammatical pieces of it, there is the, um, the biblical context. And so you don't read a sentence or a verse in Scripture uh, and take it out of context to mean something that you could argue it means, but if you read it in its own context, both the immediate context, the paragraph or the chapter or even the whole book it's written in, if you take it out of that context, there's a pretty good chance you're going to miss maybe something or maybe everything about the meaning of that passage. But more than that, the context of all of Scripture. Why is that important? All of Scripture is what? Inspired. Inspired God's Word. And so if, if my interpretation of this verse seems to be consistent internally and even within the immediate context, but my interpretation of it conflicts with very clear verses elsewhere in Scripture, then what? Yeah, so we need to take the immediate context and the entire context of Scripture into account. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. The best commentary on Scripture is other passages in Scripture. And that's, that's the entire context that we need to take into account, which suggests what, what's an application of that for us? Be in the Word. How do you know something is going to be consistent with the rest of Scripture if we're not familiar with the rest of Scripture, right? So 
the literal grammatical historical approach to interpreting scripture, which is also the way you ought to interpret anything you read, um, doesn't approach whatever you're reading with an agenda. And even if you don't approach it with an agenda, trying to prove something from what was written there, you may jump to conclusions about what it says if you don't test your interpretation against the immediate context and the broader context of all of Scripture. Right? That's the point. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the diligent application of the literal, grammatical, historical method... uh, Diligent. Sometimes it takes work to make sure that you're not missing something and observing what's there in in the written word. And diligence in checking context and the broader context of scripture, right? Um, What what are we uh, prone to do? I mean, all of us basically are lazy. So what are we prone to do? Jump to conclusions, uh, short circuit the diligence, the due diligence needed to interpret a particular passage, particularly if it's a tough passage and it's not, could mean this, could mean that, whatever. Um, The lazy thing to do is to just jump to conclusions, assume we're right and plow ahead. And all of us could be very guilty of that from time to time, and we need to be careful. So the due diligence is actually doing some work and study, not just uh, read the passage, read your favorite commentary, and then move on, but do the study ourselves to understand what's being said, what God is trying to communicate to us, um, and handle the word uh, well. Left to our own devices, we're probably more comfortable with the approach, tell me what to believe and rely on X, Y, or Z source rather than being diligent ourselves to handle the word well and to uh, take advantage of the insights of others. But I hope it doesn't surprise you to realize those insights are not inspired by God. God's word is inspired. And even if we were to wrestle with it in scripture and to do this the the study that's required to really fully understand and we come up with the same and then we read some of these commentaries and we realize oh they're smart people they came up with the same conclusion I did well that's not a waste of time that builds in us the disciplines and the character to to, to get it right rather than to be swayed by anybody before we've actually done our homework Right. Okay. Diligent application of the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation as the believer is enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We've spoke briefly, uh, maybe in our first or second lesson, about illumination that the Holy Spirit provides, one of the chains in that link, that there one of the links in that chain, um, is illumination. So the Holy Spirit just... From time to time, you've probably experienced this. You're reading scripture and you've read it a thousand times, but now you're reading it and the light bulb goes off. And you see something you've never seen before there. Well, the Holy Spirit does that. He's not speaking to us in words. Well, he's speaking to us in the words of scripture. But the illumination of the Holy Spirit, um, since he indwells every believer, he... um, uh, in his own sovereign way, as we submit to him and as we're in his word, um, he brings to light the the meaning that's actually there rather than us just guessing or m- being very superficial. Um, our job there is just to be submissive uh, as we study the scriptures um, It's a good practice to begin with prayer, right? Lord, 
uh, open my eyes to understand and, and my heart to apply. I think God enjoys answering those kind of prayers. Right? Okay, so the Holy Spirit does not give a hidden meaning to the scriptures, but rather helps the believer to apprehend the meaning of the scriptures already in the inspired words. Okay, so let's look at the second passage there, John 16. Here's an example. Um, Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So Jesus was speaking there in the um, what's called the upper room discourse, right after the Last Supper. Who was he speaking to? The disciples. That yeah, was a small, small group there. He's speaking to them. Um, so, in the most literal sense, he was speaking to them about what the Holy Spirit was going to do for them once he left. Right? Uh, the Holy um, He, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Uh, as they were the ones who were going to uh, uh, many of them be the authors of the human authors of the New Testament. Uh, the Holy Spirit would give them um, recollection of some of the things that Jesus had said, kind of putting all the pieces together. Uh, but just generally, He will guide you into all the truth. And Jesus didn't have to be there with them, but the Holy Spirit would make that possible. Now, is there some application of that to us today? It's not really speaking directly to our situation, but there may be some principles here, right? That in the same way the those who were, were Jesus' disciples needed to rely on the Holy Spirit, uh, both to understand and to, uh, many of them, be the human participants of writing down the scripture, in the same way we should be dependent on the Holy Spirit. He's not speaking to us directly here, but indirectly, by principle, uh, it's, it's a good thing for, for any believer to be reliant on the Holy Spirit to understand uh, God's word. Now, the, the advantage that we have is that God's word is there. It's written. We have it. And so the remaining piece is for us to understand it. Um, not to seek to add to it or to uh, uh, interpret it improperly, but rather properly. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's an indication that Jesus knew that that would be happening and that the Holy Spirit would be guiding um, not all of them, but some of them uh, to be... Um, writing down the scriptures, the, the, the New Testament, and so on. But the, the tricky thing is that not everything that even Peter or Paul or John or, or whatever wrote was necessarily scripture, and so there still needed to be some understanding of what's in the canon and what's not. But the fact that there would be writing that would be coming and that the Holy Spirit would superintend that is definitely what this is talking about. Yeah. Okay, let's go down to the memory verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So when he says the word of truth, what's he referring to? Scripture. Handling it accurately as opposed to what? 
Sloppily. Sloppily, okay, that is a word, I guess. Um, and so the point is about accuracy, right? So the, there, there is an interpretation that God intends us to come to, and if we're not careful, we may come to the wrong conclusion, the wrong interpretation. And so uh, handling it accurately uh, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. So it, it does take work as a responsibility associated with it. Now, who was Paul writing that to? Who was he giving that direction to? Timothy. Timothy. Why Timothy? He was a pastor. One of the pastors that, that Paul trained and, and appointed, in this case, to the church in Ephesus. Does that mean this doesn't apply to us? No. It has, again, a principle. By way of principle, it applies really to anyone who tries to handle the word of truth, that we should do so responsibly, that there is an accurate use of it as opposed to an inaccurate use of it, so we need to be careful. It's generally applicable. Okay, so you see the point. Uh, Let's go to number two. There's only one true interpretation of any passage, but there may be several applications. Um, And we've already given in the the two that we've looked at, the specific application was to the original hearers, but there's, by way of principle, a very similar application for us as well. Right? and so sometimes direct commands are, are so narrowly spoken that there's really only one way to, to um, apply that, maybe one or two. Uh, things that are principles, though, that are very clear teachings and wisdom and principles in Scripture may have thousands of applications, and that's all good, Right? Um, there is a nuance here, and that is, I don't know if you've noticed a number of prophecies, particularly in the Old Testament. Sometimes they have a two-part fulfillment, uh, which is not exactly an application, but um, sometimes the prophecies, particularly the long-term messianic prophecies in, in the Old Testament, uh, have an intermediate fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment may actually be in Christ. Sometimes they're, they're um, uh, about the millennium period, and there may be some... Uh, um, preliminary or, or partial fulfillments um, earlier, but then have an ultimate fulfillment later on. And maybe a good example of that is the Jews in Jesus' time understood that the Messiah was coming. What was their conception of the Messiah's role. Well, that the, um, the military, and yeah, but but he was he would be coming as king, right. essentially. And their their interpretation or their contextualization of that is well, if he comes as king, he's going to overthrow Rome. We're going to be golden. This is going to be good, right? right? So thinking of him as king, and is do we see that picture in the Old Testament? We do, right? But what is that referring to? We see in hindsight it's referring to the millennial reign of Christ. Um, But the the Old Testament has another description of the role of the Messiah. Like in Isaiah 53, it characterizes him as what? The suffering servant who's going to be crucified. Um, 
that wasn't on their radar all that much. Um, and so, you know, taken in its in its entirety, the Old Testament painted two pictures of the Messiah, and given only the Old Testament, I can imagine it was very hard for people to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. We have the advantage of being able to look back and see how he fulfilled the first part of that as the suffering servant and interpret the rest of those promises as now being future and how it all fits together. We have a lot more information to go on than the Jews did, even by Jesus' time. Um, And so those prophecies sometimes can be confusing as to how and when they're fulfilled. Uh, But that's one, uh, still only one interpretation, possibly multiple fulfillments, uh, but when there are commands and principles for us in Scripture, they could well have multiple applications. Okay. Yeah. Uh, people have likened it to um, the short-term fulfillments are the, the, the little hills that we see near us, but the ultimate fulfillment may be a mountain far in the distance that isn't really our focus. Um, and that's just kind of natural. But it also emphasizes that God's revelation, he didn't reveal all of scripture to Adam. Right? He didn't reveal all of scripture even to Noah or even to Abraham, right? It was progressive, a little bit more, a little bit more and um, the Old Testament was over you know, I don't know, what was it, 1,000, 1,500 years, something, maybe more than that, um, just gradually revealed and recorded. And then there's a, um, hundreds of years between the Old Testament and even the time of Christ and the New Testament. And so um, that revelation's progressive. Well, it was progressive, and now it's complete. We've, we've got all of God's revelation. Okay, that's that's an obvious point, right? I mean, if you come to an interpretation that's a bit wrong, what's what kind of quality of application are you likely to have? Probably a misapplication. Big ripples. Yeah. Actually, one I think particularly um, Paul is a good example of that. He had the scripture before he was converted. Uh, the same scripture was leading him to persecute the church and kill them and all that. After he was converted, the same word was leading him to um, evangelize and, and, and bring the preach and bring people to salvation. Yeah. Um, so the wrong, the wrong interpretation. The same verse. Yep. Lead to opposite exactly. Yeah. Good illustrations. Okay. Let's go to number three on page forty. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. So, for example, look at Joshua 1.8, the first passage there. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may careful to do, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. So uh, this is the Lord's uh, direct command to who? Joshua. As he was taking over the leadership that following in Moses's. Um, footsteps Uh, and so the command to him is to not allow yourself to depart from everything that God had revealed so what had God revealed up to that point Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy the law and so he's saying keep the law abide by it, follow it how are we going to do that? 
you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. What does it mean to meditate? Think about, think deeply about. Dwell on. Dwell on, okay. Yeah, implications, yeah, excellent. One way to do that is, let's say you've got just a sentence. And I'm just even looking at this verse, Joshua 1.8. It's probably longer than I need here, but um, this book of the law. So when you're meditating, you could say, why did he use that word rather than something else? Uh, And what's the significance of him saying this book of the law? And then shall not depart from your mouth. What does he mean, depart from your mouth? You're kind of wrestling with it, right? And uh, he's chosen this word rather than another word. There's probably a reason for that, right? Uh, You can think that through and contemplate the implications. Someone used the word implications. Um, I'm told that the word... I think in, in the Hebrew, the word for meditate is either very similar to or um, um, has as a good example the word rumination. You know what rumination is? Often we would say chewing the cud, right? So uh, animals like cows and sheep also other animals uh, it, it's kind of graphic right I mean they, they, they feed on whatever they're feeding they chew on it they swallow it and for us that's the end of the well not the end of the story but that's that's a one a one-way street right for them they chew on it they swallow it and it comes back up and they chew on it some more and swallow it, and some of them, you know, it comes up again intentionally by God's design. They chew on it some more. You see the picture? When we're meditating, we're chewing on it, ruminating on it. We swallow it. Now we continue thinking about it, though. Yeah, so we're we're kind of wrestling with it. You know, there are various figures of speech here, but um, the point is that we don't just read it, come to a quick conclusion, move on, and don't interact with the text at all, right? So this meditating is interacting with the text. And we're more likely to be um, coming to the right kind of conclusions and interpretations the more we wrestle with it, the more we interact with the text and question, okay, so why did he use this word versus this word? Um, What's the significance of the fact that it's plural instead of singular, right? And just wrestling with it and thinking it through. And um, uh, that's not a casual read. Now, there's a value in just reading through to get the entire context and whatever, but interpreting a particular verse... Uh, eventually you want to get to the point where you're you're um, ruminating, chewing the cud, swallowing it, bringing it back up, chewing out it again, and um, God uses that too. It, it's it's good to to in our interpretation to observe everything we can, and then to come to let's call it a tentative conclusion. I think it means this. Okay, then what should we do? Double check against the context, the context of the rest of Scripture. And um, if our tentative conclusion or tentative interpretation is consistent with the rest of Scripture, then that's encouraging, right? Uh, It may be that the more we dig into the passage, we'll get some more nuances that didn't immediately come to us. But we may well be on the right track if the rest of Scripture supports our 
interpretation. Okay. Uh, there's some other examples here on page 40 up to the top of page 41. Um, for example, down at the bottom of page 40, uh, Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that's speaking of Jesus' resurrection appearances to his disciples. And he showed them how the scriptures were anticipating what he had just done. His uh, crucifixion, his death on our behalf, his resurrection. Um, Man, that would have been a great conversation to be a part of, to hear him use the scriptures that way. Um, and that trained them to be able to use the scriptures the same way with those they would be uh, teaching. Okay, let's go to number four. There is a progression of revelation within Holy Scripture. We mentioned this. The New Testament completes the Old Testament and anticipates no other revelation until the second coming of Christ. Um, and you see various examples of this. Uh, in Romans 16, that first passage there. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures... Uh, uh, of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. So Paul's using the word here, mystery, which has long been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested. What was he referring to? Um, yeah, past prophecies that were needing to be fulfilled, but... Um, uh, that's that's a um, an outcome of it for sure. But what was what was mysterious up until the time of Christ? So you know the, those two roles in Messiah and kind of keeping them straight, right? The incarnation and the church. You know what are you going to learn about the church in the Old Testament? Not a whole lot. Right? It was a bit of a mystery. And um, when it became clear to the disciples by Jesus, I mean, he just said, you know, this is how the scriptures were referring to me and what I um, have done. Um, it became clear that this is now a new, uh, a new age, uh, a, a new aspect of God's plan for the salvation of all. Uh, nations and yes so up until that time what was the focus the nation of Israel right the um, the church as something distinct from the nation of Israel was a mystery uh, they didn't understand that and they didn't need to understand it because God's focus during that period of time was in and through the nation of Israel. Um, uh, the next passage, for example, Ephesians 3.5. Uh, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It's again, referring to uh, the specifics of the church, of the, um, the, the salvation that's in Christ. It's not salvation is not through uh, the sacrifice of animals and, and this kind of thing, right? It's it's the perfect fulfillment of that in the Messiah, and there and there the establishing of the church and and so on. So that was all made clear, even though it was a bit of a mystery uh, prior to that time. So anyway, there's, there's um, 
one of the benefits that we have is that we have a lot more uh, history, a lot more revelation, in fact, all of God's revelation, so that for us it seems a lot clearer than it would have ever been to um, even, say, David or Isaiah uh, or the disciples in Jesus' time. You know, we've got a much fuller picture. We've seen the history. We see the scriptures. And um, we have no excuse for the kind of confusion we can kind of understand that many of them had. Yeah. So it's progressive revelation. But it's completed revelation. He's not continuing to progress in that revelation. It's completed. Okay, so let's go to use on the bottom of page 41. It is the duty of every believer to be learning the Bible and meditating on its teachings daily. The scripture should be read, preached, studied, and carefully applied in every congregation. So that's why he gave us the scripture, right? You remember the those uh, links in that chain? It goes... Uh, let's see if I can get the page here. Page 18. Starts with the mind and will of God and through revelation and inspiration and then the discovery uh, of the canon, the transmission of the scriptures over many years, even translation from one language to another, And then as people read it and the Holy Spirit illumines their understanding to the meaning that's there in the scriptures, helping them then to interpret it. And what is the final link in the chain? Application. That application is why God revealed it to begin with. Right? And so if we have the Bible and it sits on our shelf... and we're not understanding it and we're not applying it, then we're short-circuiting what God actually intended. Right? It's meant to be understood but also applied. So it's not just our getting our heads aligned with Scripture, but our will and our obedience. Right? Okay. Uh, flip the page, and the very top is that other... Um, memory passage from Psalm 1. Uh, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree planted firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You know, there are three psalms that focus on the word of God, the, the, the nature of the word of God. And this is one of them, Psalm 1. Uh, meditating on the word. You know what the other two psalms are? 19. Very simple. 119. It's all about the word of God, right? So it's Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. It makes it easier to remember. Right? Psalm 1 just drives home the point. You're meditating on it. You're understanding it. You're, you're um, interpreting it correctly. Why? Just so that you fill your head with factoids and knowledge? No. Why? So it influences your life, right? You apply it. And if you apply it, then you're going to be strong, like trees planted firmly by the water, always getting that nourishment and and so on. Uh, Several verses down, the fourth one here, from Acts 2. 
speaking of the disciples right after um, Pentecost, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So, uh, where is the scripture there? The apostles' teaching, right? God was, right from the beginning, um, having them teach others what Christ had taught them. And some of what he taught them was during his resurrection appearances, but over the the whole three, three and a half years of their time with him, um, they began by teaching the teaching of Christ. But then over time, God, the Holy Spirit, gave them um, more revelation, which ended up becoming the rest of the New Testament. Uh, but they were always uh, immersed in the Word of God, all the other aspects of fellowship and church. Okay, number two on page 42. Nothing is ever to be added to or taken away from Holy Scripture. Rather, the Scripture is to be guarded as a completed heavenly treasure. Uh, look, for example, at Second Timothy 1 the third one there, or the second one. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So here Paul has been investing in Timothy, his trainee, as now a new young pastor in the church in Ephesus. And he says, guard what you have learned from me, uh, which would have been um, a proper use and understanding of all the scriptures that they had at that point, uh, the teachings of Christ and the, uh, uh, the teachings of other apostles like Paul and, and others even during their lifetime. Okay, uh, got a couple of minutes. We can look at the questions. Look at number two on page 43. How can we know if a passage should be taken figuratively, allegorically, or as hyperbole? Do you know what hyperbole is? Exaggeration. That's a good word for it, exaggeration. So is, yeah, that influences how we would interpret something if it really is meant to be exaggeration, right? Can you think of any examples in scripture of, of hyperbole? I mean, the one that I wrote down was, um, yeah, Acts twenty thirty one on the other page. For three years, I did not cease to admonish you. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure he slept. I'm pretty sure he ate. I don't think he, like literally spent every single second admonishing them. So that's hyperbole. It's just like very light hyperbole. But you know what he means. He, um, at every opportunity, he, he was doing that. Okay? The one I like is 1 Corinthians 13. You're all probably kind of familiar with it. Verses 1 through 3. Let's see if I can bring it up here real quickly. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he's saying, if, if, I, if I knew pretty much every tongue you could imagine, both on earth and on heaven, um, it's taking it to the extreme. Right, if, But if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries, and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So he's taking it to the extreme. Right? That's hyperbole. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, 
And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So, yeah, there's an example where he's trying to make the point by going to the extreme and saying, even if that's true, but I don't have love, what's it worth? Right? That's the point. That's hyperbole. And so we need to understand hyperbole when we read it or hear it for what it is. It's making a point, and we need to get that point, not take it as so literal as to mean um, that some of these extreme things are required of us. That's not the point. That's that's a good example. Yeah, unless you hate your your family like your mother and father, you're not worthy of me. He's he's using the extreme there between um, our love for our 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 good love for our family members as compared to the love and devotion we need to have for God, right? So we need to get the point that he's making and not trip over the hyperbole. So what's an allegory? Comparison? So an allegory tends, would tend to be a story, that's right. What's the most famous allegory you're aware of? Pilgrim's Progress. And why is that an allegory? It's kind of blatant allegory. I mean, the guy's name is Christian, right? <laughs> and it's got all these different names and steps and things that are meant to have a meaning and a, and a parallel um, to a parallel truth about the Christian life. And the okay, that's an allegory. So if that's an allegory, what's a parable, right? That's the question. Isn't a parable doing the same thing? It's a story that has a parallel meaning in real life that it's trying to communicate, right? The difference between an allegory and a parable is that an allegory intentionally assigns this parallel meaning to a lot of different components in the the allegory. Whereas a parable typically just has one meaning that it's trying to convey by term, terms of a, of a, a story, that underlying meaning has a parallel in the you know, spiritual counterpart, but the components of the story don't necessarily have a one-to-one correspondence with the ultimate reality. Now, there are some sort of exceptions to that. Um, when scripture, well, in terms of parables of scripture, uh, sometimes Jesus, in giving a parable, does describe the corresponding meaning to some of the components, like the parable of the four soils, the parable of the sower. He, he, he explains what each of the four soils really has, what the parallel meaning is, and who the sower is, and what the seed is. And in that sense, that one is pretty close to an allegory, except it's very short. Parables tend to be pretty short. Kind of like a shorter, simpler version of an allegory. Yeah, and but but the key thing with the parable is don't read into the components of it uh, a one-to-one correspondence with the reality that it's trying to point to. You might get bogged down in in a parable, whereas with an allegory, it's intentionally got that one-to-one correspondence with most of the events or the people or whatever. That's the main difference. So um, you asked earlier about the Song of Solomon. A lot of people think the Song of Solomon is an allegory. And it's trying to picture the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. It's a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch. Um, the Song of Solomon is an interesting book to interpret, but I think... It is a stretch to say it's an allegory about Christ and the church, and it's particularly something that the Old Testament Jews should have understood better or something. I I don't know. But um, I think it's, personally, I think it's pretty fair to say that there are no allegories 
in Scripture. Parables, and there's some parables that have detailed one-for-one meanings, but they're short. The main point of those parables is what's the key, not um, an allegorical correspondence. Uh, yeah. God was trying to illustrate, to drive home a point about, about the nation of Israel um, worshiping false gods and basically going into um, spiritual adultery. Right. It's um, not really allegorical. Symbolic. Um, wh- what he had Hosea do was symbolic to try to get people's attention. I'm not sure to what extent it got people's attention, but um, yeah. Okay. Uh, figurative. We've already talked about some things um, when Jesus. Um, at the Last Supper said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Was he thinking it was literally his body, the, the bread that he was breaking there? No, he said, this is my body, my body's here. Um, he was using it as a figure of speech, as an illustration, so that we can understand uh, the, the meaning of not only the Last Supper, but even the the um, Passover, sort of a metaphor, kind of a metaphor, yeah, yeah, which is a figure of speech, right? right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to have to shut down this fun stuff, but let's close and pray.